all here with us today. I'm going to continue my sermon series on lessons from the first century church. We have so much that God can teach us as we look back to that dynamic beginning of Christianity as that first group of people got together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and began what is now covering billions of people throughout this world. And so what can we learn? What, what lessons does God have for us as we see how these early Christians affirmed each other and lifted each other up and came together to support each other uh, when, in fact, they didn't even have a church building? They didn't have a building. They didn't have uh, cultural impact in the world. They didn't have programs, but they had the Holy Spirit. And when you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need anything else. Uh, and so that's really what it's about. And you know, the first church, they didn't call themselves church. They called themselves ecclesia. Ecclesia, and the Greek translation of that is the gathering. And when we name this church, yes, that's why this church is called the gathering. We could have called it ecclesia, but then nobody would come. They think it would be Greek Orthodox. No, it's not Greek Orthodox. Uh, this is a Christian church, the gathering. And so we have so much to learn, uh, and I want to focus today on how they really came together in fellowship. Look at, we're going to learn a lot about how they helped each other and affirmed each other. And so the, the epistles in the New Testament shaped the doctrine of Christianity, but the application of that doctrine, the daily application, how we live as Christians, was shaped really by that first century church. And so the passage of Scripture really shows us uh, an ideal of the working church. And if you have your Bibles, we'll put it on the board. Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42 to 47. Uh, and this really is a deep dive into how that early church worked. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God uh, and, and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily to those who were saved. What a great picture this is of that early church who come together with love and affirmation in such an incredible way. And look at some of the words that are really highlighted in that passage. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the scripture in every way. Uh, they were all filled with awe at the power of the Holy Spirit in God's working. They all came together and helped those who were in need. And so if you had need, they looked for you and they helped you. They gave you food and they, they gave you sustenance uh, and they shared their ministry and they continued to meet together every day. It was a constant meeting together, an affirmation of the whole. And that's what I want our church to be. I want our church to function like a first century church, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with love, filled with commitment to come together 
and to emphasize the work of, of, the, of the Lord. Now, this describes the newborn church in its prime, uh, when it possessed a purity of devotion to the word of God and to the risen Jesus Christ. It is unmatched in succeeding centuries uh, from other churches. And what will happen, uh, unfortunately, uh, things will come into the church and they will divide the church uh, and Satan will begin to work against the church. And so you see here in this first century church, you see the purity of this church as it's making a major spiritual impact in the world. Uh, and, and as they devoted themselves even to the breaking of bread, meaning the, the communion, they regularly celebrated communion. And so what are some of the issues that we can focus on here uh, as we see the impact of this church? Well, one of the first thing is nothing outside of the word of God defined life for the church. Nothing outside of the word of God. There were no political agendas. There were no anti-Rome speeches, even as people were being crucified. It was totally the word of God. And when the church focuses on the word of God, the church prospers. It's that simple. And though still not having any major cultural impact, uh, they, you know, in terms of having success the way the world defines success, they didn't have any worldly strategies, uh, and they didn't have anything that the world would look at as success, yet God was using them to accomplish amazing things. We know that in the first uh, speech that was made by, uh, by Peter, 3,000 came to salvation. 3,000 as the church added to its number. And so this becomes an important thing for under, us to understand, even today as we look for how God wants us to work. That's why my goal for this church is that this church be primarily devoted to the word of God. I believe that's why God called me to this pulpit. He called me because he knew I was a teaching pastor. Uh, and as a teaching pastor, I'm devoting my life to opening the scriptures and giving you the word of God of God. I'm not a coach. I don't give you five ways to make more friends. You understand? This is the wrong church if that's what you're looking for. But if you're looking for a church that's going to dive deeply into the Word of God and give you the Word of God so that you can apply it in your life, you found the right church. Now, as we underscore these lessons from the first century church, the next thing I want to focus on, it was a saved church. It was a saved church. There were 3,000 that came to faith effectively on the first day the church was formed. Uh, and they, they were baptized. They weren't just mouth Christians. They didn't, just didn't say they were saved. Not only did they commit with their heart, but they gave the public manifestation to the rest of the Jewish community by being saved. How easy do you think that was for a Jew in the first century living in Jerusalem? You think that was easy? But you understand what it is when God takes your heart? When you're committed to serving God and you understand, yes, Lord, I understand, I believe in my heart, and I'm manifesting my testimony to the world by way of uh, baptism. And so despite being surrounded by hate and persecution, despite the fact that your very leader was executed and put on a cross, despite all of that, God is pouring his spirit into that church and thousands and thousands are coming to faith. What an amazing picture this is. 
Someday when we get to heaven, I'm sure we'll be able to see the videotape. It'll be absolutely astounding uh, as God shows us what happens when there is real, genuine salvation. This is the essence of real salvation. When you see life-changing facts in people's lives. Now, this church was also a scriptural church, meaning it was devoted to the teaching of the apostles. The content of that church was the revealed word of God. That's what they lived with. They didn't have a set of bylaws or a set of ancillary books that they looked at. They didn't have any spiritual philosophy books. This church was devoted to the teaching of the apostles, the revealed word of God. And Paul made it crystal clear. Uh, and he spoke about this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, in which he's advising his associate, on what it takes to lead a first century church. And there he says, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will be also qualified to teach others. That's the essence of what we're doing here. I'm teaching you. I'm giving you the word of God, and God expects you to take this teaching and give it to others. God is making you teachers of the gospel. He expects you to go and give it to other people. It may be a family member. It may be a friend, but God doesn't expect it to end here. This is not about entertainment. I'm not up here trying to give you a lesson on public speaking 101. I'm trying to give you the revealed word of God so that when you leave here and go out to the parking lot, you can give it to somebody else. And that's what they did. They understood that. That was how this church worked. Uh, and so a commitment to apostolic teaching is foundational to the growth of the church. It is foundational to the growth of this church. We predicate our growth in this church on the Bible on what the Bible tells us. That's what we, we predicate our growth. Look also at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Again, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. This is how we grow together, by studying scriptures, by craving it. I hope that you want to come to church so bad on Sunday that you can't wait for Sunday to come. I hope you go to bed early on Saturday night so that when you come here on Sunday morning, you're ready to go, okay? That's why Linda and I generally go to bed about 8 o'clock on Saturday night. Don't call our house after 8 o'clock. You won't reach us because we're charging our batteries because we want to get up here and see God and be together with the people of God. We can't wait to be here. And I hope you feel the same way. I can't wait to see what God has. Even though I write these sermons during the week, God fills me again with the Holy Spirit even as I'm delivering it and he's speaking to my heart. I can't tell you how many times when I listen to the radio, when I listen to the sermons on the radio, I hear it, it's as if I'm hearing it for the first time. You understand? That is the Holy Spirit taking the very words that were uttered before, the language that was written before, and creates a newness in it that touches your heart. It's an absolutely astonishing thing. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing, and that's what he does here in this church. And then Paul wrote another letter uh, to Timothy and Titus, uh, in which he said there in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 6, if you point these things out 
to the brothers and sisters. You'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Effectively, a believer should count it a wasted day. Listen to what I'm saying. When he does not learn something new or from the word of God. It's a wasted day if a day goes by and you've not been enriched in some way from the word of God because God has it for you every day to dive deeply every day. And this was new to the early church. They understood it. They were motivated by it. It it empowered everything that they did. Uh, And so today, many churches ignore at their peril the application of these truths. You know, you'll go today to some churches, you'll never hear the Bible mentioned. You'll never hear the word of God mentioned. Instead, you're going to hear some platitude, some philosophy, some book that's been written, and you're going to hear that. And I'm not putting that down. There's a place for that. But the primary place, the foundational predicate of what we stand for is the word of God. Look also at what's mentioned in the Old Testament as God spoke to his people, warning them in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people, God said, are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will ignore your children. Folks, let's understand this predicate for the church. The church cannot operate on truth. It has not been taught. It cannot operate on truth if it has not been taught the truth. And that's our responsibility. That's our responsibility, even as you raise your children to understand the basic foundational truths in Sunday school. It goes on right through life. It never ends. The truth of God continues and pours on constantly. That church, that early church, was also a fellowship church. It was a church that came together in fellowship. And now fellowship, you see, uh, is defined as the spiritual duty of believers to stimulate each other to holiness and faithfulness. Stimulating each other to holiness and faithfulness. It's not just a covered dish. You understand, when we come together in fellowship, and I would say that what we take place in the commons here before church is fellowship, and what we do after church in the commons, it's fellowship, and we're lifting and affirming each other to holiness uh, and faithfulness. That's what it's about. That's what this means. That's what fellowship is about. That's what this church must be. And the basic meaning of this is partnering with Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. We're partnering with Christ. I want you to be empowered to be a full partner with Jesus. He wants you to be his hands and his feet in this world. That's why we teach you the word of God. And now we're teaching you how to have fellowship and how to lift up and affirm each other. And so those who receive Christ will be able to do this. They will be able to have that gift and reach others and and share eternal life with them uh, in the most powerful way. And when we neglect the duty of fellowship, and let me affirm this, when you don't come to church, it's a sin. 
When you don't come out and be a part of the fellowship, you are denying the will of God. God expects you to be a part of the community of believers and to be a part of the fellowship of God. That's what this is about. Look, this isn't just about us playing games. We're not just keeping track of who comes and who doesn't come. We are telling you that God expects you to be here and to be part of fellowship. And so to, to, for a Christian to refuse to be a part of the life of a local church effectively is inexcusable. That's inexcusable conduct. Uh, and if you isolate yourself from the local church, you isolate yourself from the local church, you're being disobedient to the direct command of Scripture. Look, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews is written about 50 A.D., and you can see there, as it was written, that there were some people that already stopped getting together. Jesus has only died 20 years prior to that, and now some people are abandoning the obligation to come together. And the Scripture is warning them, you have an obligation to get together. Why? Because when we get together, we are encouraging each other for good deeds. We are accountable to each other. We love each other. We're there for each other so that if you're hurting, I'm there for you. I'm there to pray for you and lift you up and you likewise for me. It's all together. There's this relationship, this symbiotic relationship that's cemented by Christ Jesus. And so just as the first century church operated this way, this is how we are to operate in every day of our lives. And the early church was also, and by the way, God didn't intend for you to be a lone ranger. And so I would have to say this, that we came through COVID and some of us locked ourselves up in the house, right? Some of us have locked ourselves up in the house and some of us have been locked up for two years. Well, get over it, unlock the door, it's time to get back to church. It's time to get back to church for all the reasons that I'm speaking today on this, in this sermon in such a way. And so the fellowship in the early church was a Christ-centered church. Jesus was the center of that church. He was the, uh, the foundational aspect of the church. And the church was effectively symbolized by obedience to the breaking of bread and communion. Now, this duty is not optional. They regularly had communion, and it represented their heart and their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what they show to an outside world. The duty to have communion is not optional. Uh, and the Lord commanded it to every believer. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. I love the way he writes. There's one loaf. There's one body. There's one Christ. And we all have the obligation to be a part of that one loaf, every single one of us. And it's through communion that we do this and indicate to a lost world just exactly who we are. And so the early church was also a praying church. 
And I'm so glad we're going to have a prayer day because that, that's an important foundational aspect to what the church is about. They were persistently engaged in the critical duty of prayer. Now, Jesus had promised his disciples that whatever they had asked for uh, in his name, they would give them in every possible way. And so the early church took that promise as a foundational predicate. And so they regularly asked God to intervene in their lives. They relentlessly pursued divine help. Uh, and, And the prayer that I'm talking about here is not just corporate prayer, prayer done in the church body itself, but it's individual prayer as well. It's both. Uh, And so the early church understood that. Prayer is the means through grace by which the church becomes what God wants it to be. Let me repeat that. Prayer is the means through grace by which the church becomes what God wants it to be. And now the early church also had significant spiritual character. Look again at Acts chapter 2, verse 43, as I emphasize this. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added their number daily to those who were being saved. This was an awe-inspiring church. It was awe-inspiring whether you were on the inside or whether you were on the outside. It was awe-inspiring. As God did many wonders and miracles through the apostles and those associated with apostles. That's why thousands are being gathered to that church because of the supernatural character of the church. Look, it was the spiritual gifts of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that was empowering this church. They didn't have a building. They didn't have programs. They didn't have cultural impact. But the one thing that they had was the abiding presence of God and the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want to see in our church in every possible way, guiding and empowering us and causing us to go out and change this world in a powerful way. And so we understand this. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. How can we ignore the power of God? And all of us here have seen the power of God in our lives. You've seen it as you've grown older. You've seen it in your children and in your family. You know what God has done for you. How how can we ignore so great a salvation? We cannot. We cannot. And that's the nature of what church is about. Now look, another part of the predicate of the early church was it was a sharing church. Acts 2 again, verse 44, again emphasizing the nature of sharing. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That's how the church should function. 
It should function in a way that when we know one of ours is hurting, we reach out. If one of ours is in need, we reach out. If somebody needs something, we attend to it. We pray for them. We give to them. That's the obligation of the church. And so in those early days before strife and division affected the church, all of those who believed came together on a regular basis. And what they possessed was not just spiritual unity, but also a practical oneness where they were together together. They, saying that they had all things in common does not mean it was communal living. And let me disabuse you with this right now. Because I hear people talk about this, so-called secularists in the world that talk about the early church who know nothing. There was no communal living in the early church. This was not practical communism. I've heard that also. It had nothing to do with communism. It wasn't socialism. What it was really was each believer being prompted by the Holy Spirit to give of their own substance. You understand? The church didn't say, sell that house sell that land. It never did anything like that. Every believer was left on their own to be responding to the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit touched them, just as it touches you here in this church. And when the Holy Spirit touched them, they gave willingly, generously, voluntarily, uh, in love. And all of that helped the early church. Uh, and the church met their needs. Look, God expects each of us to be responsible for what he has given you. You are a fiduciary for every dollar and possession that you own. I can't make it clearer than that. Whatever you own, he gave you, all right? Whether he gave you a lot or he gave you less than a lot, whatever he gave you is his, and when we finally come to terms with understanding what that means, that means that your prayer must be, Lord, how much of your property should I keep for myself? Instead, Lord, here's the 10% that I am painfully carving out for you. And for some of us, it's like a major operation. It's like major surgery. Instead, it should be, Lord, thank you, Father, for giving me the privilege of giving you back what you've given me. Amen? I mean, I can't say it any other way. I can't say it any other way. And I'm so blessed to have a father and mother that drilled that into my home and my house early on so that I understand it. Understand the power of giving God back what he's due. And I told a lesson on Monday that I'll repeat it here because not all of you heard it because we, we tithed all the time from the time we were little kids, uh, six years old, right through early marriage. And when Linda and I got married, we moved into a town that was called the safest city in America, Nutley, New Jersey. And within two years of us moving into that house and going to church on a Friday night, our house was robbed. The safest city in America. We come home from church on a Friday night, the doors are all open, the house is ransacked, even the ceiling fixtures are taken down. You understand? As they search for every nook and cranny for money, we had a new puppy, and the puppy ran up the stairs during this, but luckily couldn't run down the stairs, so we still had him. But we came into that house, and we looked at the one place, that was the desk drawer, 
out in the middle of the bedroom, and in the front drawer of that desk was God's money in a box open, and not one dollar was taken. Not one dollar. It's as if it was the Ark of the Covenant. I can't make this up. A house ransacked, ceiling fixtures taken, and God's money left untouched. Well, you know what? He spoke to me then. I understood what he was saying to me. He was saying to me the priority of giving had to stay that way in my life, that that was his money and a recognition of his money. And so this is what we have to understand. This is what the early church did. It, didn't, it was all an understanding of whatever we have, it's yours, God. Whatever people need, we're going to give. We're going to do this. And so this was not a primitive form of communism. It was the essence of living a life committed to Christ. You understand that everything that I have is yours, Jesus, whatever I had, because people still owned homes. They still owned homes, but effectively they were selling their personal property and giving from their personal property to those who needed it. Uh, and when you read the study of Ananias and Sapphira in the early church and you see that they were struck dead even as they gave money, I want you to understand something. They were struck dead not because they didn't give enough. They were struck dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. You understand? They lied to the Holy Spirit. And there's no greater sin than lying to the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus has made that abundantly clear. Uh, and so sharing was not just limited to material things, but it included spiritual benefits and ministry as well. In every way, they went to the temple every day and they shared their stories at the temple. How about that? You want to be an evangelist? Go to a synagogue. All right, that's what they were doing. They were going to the main temple and they were talking about Jesus. They weren't afraid of being crucified because they were operating under the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so they loved. It was filled with love. And let me say this, and this I want to make sure I, I, I drill this home to you too, as we surround ourselves. We're now involved in small groups, which I think is great. That's what this is about. God wants us to be in small groups. But when we're involved in small, small groups, I pray that we not gossip. Okay? I pray that we not gossip. And when if you're there and you begin to see gossip taking place, ask God to intervene. Because this is not about gossip. We don't come together in small groups to gossip. We come to advance the work of God. All right? And if you're unhappy about certain aspects of the church, don't complain about it in a small group. Come and see the leadership of the church. Because maybe there's things that you don't know about that when you find out about will answer your concerns. The bottom line is to come together in love. In love. In every way. In love and caring. And so we have to understand this so, so much. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says the following, and I think it's so appropriate for us as we drill down on the first century church. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. That's why we've raised money for the Ukraine because how can we come together in church and worship when we know that there are brothers and sisters who are being murdered and executed by evil even though it's on the other side of the world? We can't sit still for that. 
We can't sit still for that. That's what God demands from us. And so the early church was also a joyful church. And one of the key reasons for that joy was the sincerity of heart that they manifested. Can you imagine knowing that you're serving God, that the power of God is within you, that you are surrounded by the saints of God who are also exhibiting the power of God? They were filled with joy, and they exalted the Lord in every possible way. And look what Philippians chapter 2 says about that. And that's the goal of this, of this church. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind, filled with joy, filled with happiness. Know that you're serving God, that God is using you, uh, and that you are impacting the kingdom of God. Look, as I wrap this message up for you, look at this. Look at the incredible lessons that God has for us in this first century church. A total devotion to Scripture, a commitment to serving God, Christ-centered in every way, defined by the Word of God, devoting to the teaching of Scripture, sharing everything, including our gifts, uh, and finally, loving God. And as we love God, we love each other. That I give you is the ecclesia. That is the gathering. That's what God wants from you. That's what this church is about. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the words that you've given us. I thank you for the instruction of how our church should operate. I thank you for the words of the first century Christians and how impactful they are. And Lord, I thank you for Christ Jesus and his commitment to us dying on the cross so that each and every one of us can be part of a church like this, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the empowerment of your word, so that when we come here together, it's not about us, it's about you, Lord. It's about serving you in every way. It's about impacting the world through you, Father. Father, we ask you to seal this words. Let it resonate in our heart this week as we continue to reflect on the call of our life. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.